I'm David Old, and this is episode five of Dual Citizens. Well, it looks like Russia and Ukraine are teetering on the brink of war. We'll have a think about what Christians in the past have thought about uh, war and whether we should or shouldn't commit to it. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the Prime Minister and white bread and whether that makes him a racist. But first, in Canberra last Saturday, we saw some protests happening. They continued um, on well into the week. Uh, appeared to be a mix of anti-vaccine activists, both anti-vaccine general and then the more specific anti-vaccine mandate. We had some conspiracy theorists there and people from the sovereign citizen movement and so on. But the majority of it was protesting these vaccine mandates. Uh, the Prime Minister, in response, said, look, Australia is a free country. And besides, it's the states that set rules about COVID vaccine mandates. Uh, these freedom protests were similar in form and simultaneously uh, nebulous in, 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 in their broad political goals with those that have materialized in Britain, France and New Zealand. Of course, uh, there is a, a convoy uh, claiming to originate from across Europe, making its way towards Brussels. And we've seen, haven't we, in recent days in Canada, the truckers uh, blocking main arteries uh, there. Um, online posters are speaking about ending the mandates, ending the restrictions, protecting the children. Uh, at times you do wonder what they're protesting against since many of these restrictions um, have gone and yet some are still in place. There were of course some uh, more extreme claims, hundreds yelling claims that federal politicians were paedophiles, I don't, I don't get that one, and some calling for Prime Minister Scott Morrison to be removed. Uh, it is worth noting, however, that it was largely a crowd of ordinary people. Uh, writing last Tuesday in the Sydney Morning Herald, the, the Nine News political editor Chris Ullman observed this, quote, Quite a few stopped me to make it clear I was part of a media they held in contempt, but most were polite. We're not all rednecks, said one. That was evident, says uh, Ullman, to anyone who bothered to look. Most of the crowd looked like they just wandered out of Bunnings. Uh, the group claims, for example, that they're not anti-vax, they're, they're pro-choice uh, and so on. Now, it's interesting how the media has chosen to cover this. Initially, there was barely any noise on this massive protest. You would have to actually know someone who was attending and then posting about it on social media to even know that it was happening. That's actually how I became aware of it. I wasn't aware there were these thousands of people until someone I knew went there. Uh, the media also claimed that there were maybe only 10, 15,000 people at the rally. But I think if you watch the footage, it's actually clear it's far more. Um, uh, estimates from attendees uh, dispute that 10 to 15,000, even if the use by some of them of that label Million Man March is massively wishful uh, thinking. The media has been generally negative towards these protests. A few opinion articles suggest it's all just, you know, far-right bogans and conspiracy theorists making an unnecessary fuss. But while there may have been some conspiracy theorists and certainly some very right-wing elements there, there's also plenty of people there from the left wing. And as we've already seen, the reality is that just so many attending were, how can we put it, just 
regular Australians. So, so why has so little attention been brought to a protest of this scale? And yet, smaller rallies for other contentious issues, maybe around race, for example, receive widespread and usually far more sympathetic coverage from the media. Of course, it's not the first time we've seen this sort of blatantly one-sided reporting. Uh, I remember a few a few years ago when the New South Wales Parliament was debating an abortion bill. I went to my first ever protest rally, finally an issue that got me on the streets. Uh, and that cold evening, we gathered in Martin Place in Sydney, and it was full as we listened to the speakers. And the media there reported, quote, hundreds gathered. And that was, frankly, disgraceful reporting from anyone who was there who saw it. There were obviously many thousands of us there. Then it got worse. The next weekend, there were two rallies held in central Sydney. The first on a Saturday was a pro-abortion gathering where, from the pictures that the media actually showed, it was obvious that maybe a few hundred people had shown up. They got covered on the news that night. The next day after church on Sunday, I took a train into Sydney with my family. Uh, we gathered at Hyde Park with an amazing crowd. I mean, thousand upon thousand upon thousand. If the size of the crowd was any indication, it was quite obvious that passionate opposition to the bill far outweighed support. But you'd have never known that from the news reports that we saw. The contrast was incredibly striking, but I did not hear a single reporter mention it. And of course, we made a similar point, didn't we, last week when we discussed the religious discrimination bill and how the so-called debate around it has been reported. Well, here's another example. And the issue here, which I fear those making the editorial decisions don't get or are just shutting their eyes to, is that every time they under-report these things, it only encourages those protesting to go harder and stronger and for more to join them. And the reality is they just can't wish these things away. In Canada, the Prime Minister has just declared a state of emergency because he wants to deal with truckers who are protesting very similar things. Uh, back to Chris Ullman in the Sydney Morning Herald. Here's what he's got to say, quote, There was a myriad of grievances, but most opposed vaccine mandates. All were sick of being subjected to constant and mercurial government interference in their lives. And that's become the key issue, hasn't it? over-authoritarian government approaches. And I think we can't avoid observing that in general, it's been the more left-leaning governments that have gone harder in their authoritarianism. Some of what we saw in Victoria over the past few years, for example, has been particularly shocking. And by contrast, it's been more right-leaning governments that have been quick to relax restrictions where they could. So in the US, that's certainly been the case amongst the various states. Uh, the UK's conservative government has been easing rules right back. And here in New South Wales, the government was keen to take the brakes off as soon as possible before Christmas. All of this is to be expected. Because remember, in general, a right-wing approach approaches values. Uh, it, it values individual freedom and autonomy. And a left-wing position will seek to make more decisions on behalf of the individual. In our very first episode of Dual Citizens, we reminded ourselves from Romans 13 that the role of the government is to commend what is right and punish what is wrong. And the further they move from that basic approach, the more the people they govern are likely to protest. Pointing to the fringe elements within the protests, under-reporting the numbers, and whatever else some segments of the media will do, can't hide the reality that some of our governments have overstepped the mark, and the dual citizen needs to carefully work out where they stand in all of this. 
Now, over to Eastern Europe, where tensions between Russia and Ukraine are this week reaching uh, further heights, perhaps coming to a climax. There are now almost 150,000 Russian troops and counting stationed on the Ukrainian border, prompting UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, for example, to cut short a national tour to convene meetings with both his cabinet and with foreign leaders. According to The Guardian, quote, Britain believes Russia has committed about 60% of its ground forces to the build-up and doubled its available air power in the region, but thinks Putin could extend the crisis for weeks or even longer. Uh, reports suggest a Russian force of this size is more than sufficient to launch a successful invasion of this former Soviet state. And some reports a few days ago were that an invasion was imminent. Indeed, we're recording this on a Wednesday and we're told uh, that Wednesday or Thursday may be the day. It could be Russia's invaded by the time you see this. What is going on here? Well, uh, many suggest it's doubtful that Russia actually aspires to completely annex Ukraine, even though President Putin of Russia last year described the people in a big speech as uh, the two peoples of Ukraine and Russia as, quote, one people, a single whole. Uh, but hopefully a full-on invasion and annexation is an unlikely scenario for multiple reasons, least of which would be the huge across-the-board sanctions threatened by other major powers, let alone the difficulty it would be to maintain control in Ukraine. Uh, no, this game of brinkmanship, of which the Russians are very good at, is most likely being played to force Western nations to cede to several key Russian demands. Uh, Russian's foreign ministry has made it clear uh, that they really want two things. They want NATO to guarantee that Ukraine will never be permitted to become a member, and they want NATO to cease all military activity in the former Eastern Europe, particularly in former Warsaw Pact states. It is hard, isn't it, to see NATO complying with such demands. Uh, those uh, nations in the east of Europe have entered NATO freely of their own volition, unlike the Warsaw Pact uh, back in the 40s and 50s of the last century. But it's perhaps naive to ignore the fact that there might be some genuine concern for Russia, even if not well-founded. After all, the edge of NATO has moved from the middle of Europe right up to Russia's border. And Russia has a long memory. The Second World War left well over 20 million casualties for the Soviet Union, more than half of whom were civilians. It, it, it does make us ponder, is there now a, a, a real possibility of a war in Europe? Well, the next few days, maybe even hours, will be critical. Now, as Christians, considering the question of war and entry into war, we thankfully have a long history of theologians and Christian philosophers, many in positions of considerable importance whose thoughts we can draw on for wisdom. Uh, while not entirely unique to Christian philosophy, uh, figures such as Augustine and Thomas Aquinas are key players in this field, and as a consequence, we have what is known as just war theory. It's long been a decision-making process for our Christian leaders and states. Uh, just war theory holds that while a war may not be good, a war can certainly be just and can be used to determine whether states should participate in a particular conflict and if they do go to war, how they ought to conduct that warfare. Uh, it, it seeks to reconcile uh, three things. Uh, the BBC Ethics website is as good a place as any to go for a summary of this. Uh, they summarize it this way. Uh, one, uh, it's seriously wrong to take a human life, obviously. Uh, two, states do have a duty to defend justice and their citizens. Uh, and three, protecting innocent human life and defending important moral values sometimes requires willingness to use force and violence.
And that's actually grounded again in a text we've already seen uh, today, Romans 13, verse 4. For the one in authority, says the apostle, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Now, obviously, Christians might disagree on quite how the state should bear the sword, but it does seem that there ought to be agreement that the state does bear God's sword. It is, as the apostle puts it, an agent of God's wrath. And maybe sometimes, well, uh, how does the um, the writer Coeleth deep in the Old Testament put it in Ecclesiastes? There is a time, he says, for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time for war and a time for peace. Now, just war theory isn't intended simply to simply justify war, but actually rather to prevent it by limiting what might be considered as legitimate warfare. You don't just get to go to war because you like it. There must be demonstrable conditions in place, according to this theory. Here's some of them. One, there must be a just cause, which doesn't, interestingly enough, according to this theory, include simply retaking territory or punishing someone. There needs to be an urgent, imminent threat to innocence, which only war will prevent. Uh, Two, there must be a clear moral right and wrong, not just mutual grievances. Uh, There must be a reasonable chance of success. Otherwise, it's just futile suffering. It it must be a very last resort after all other avenues have been exhausted. And it certainly must be proportionate. You don't get to drop an A-bomb on somebody uh, just because uh, they did something to you. Now, it's hard to see how all those conditions are met for Russia in the current situation, isn't it? But would they also be met by any other power seeking to intervene, if, even if they did seek to? Well, as Christians, we need to pray, don't we, for clarity, wisdom, and an unerring concern for justice, and perhaps a little bit of courage on the part of all international leaders. It is worrying days for that part of the world. Well, let's return to Australia and the curious case of the Battle of the White Bread Sandwich in the ongoing culture war. I wonder if you saw this one. It's fascinating. Uh, Last week, Prime Minister Scott Morrison was asked one of those gotcha questions. I think it was at the press club uh, about the price of a loaf of bread. Now, of course, he didn't know. Frankly, I don't really know either. Um, In our house, that's not how the division of labour falls. My wife actually really enjoys going to the supermarket. I know. But who am I to deny her that pleasure. I wouldn't know how much a a loaf of bread costs. But in an effort to regain some ground, Morrison appeared on breakfast TV the next morning and answering a question about whether he was out of touch with people, he responded, quote, I'm just normal white bread, white toast man. That's me. Well, apparently this was all worthy of further debate and analysis. And so it got sliced up on ABC's The Drum, where Noreen Young, professor of indigenous policy at University of Technology, Sydney, said, well, actually, why don't we just watch a brief clip of what she said? The comment about bread was really, the the white bread was really interesting. Who eats uh, white bread in this country? Anglo men. Um, I come from a working class background. We had brown bread because we were healthy. I think that it shows a a deep lack of understanding as to who works in this country. Who eats white bread in this country? Anglo men. So apparently Morrison's choice of white bread betrays his class and race credentials or, or lack of them. 
Well, you've got to ask, how did we get here? Where does this sort of thing come from? Where, why did white bread now become the great marker? Well, it's an example actually of this thing called critical race theory in action and how a particular vocal and influential cohort of academics often see racial and perhaps class-based issues in all aspects of society even a simple slice of white bread. Yes, the type of wheat that you choose is a race issue. Critical race theory, often called CRT for short, is part of a broader movement often called intersectionality. It theorizes that social issues such as law and justice and race are deeply linked, claiming that they intersect in broad and pervasive ways. So according to CRT, there are inherent social, cultural and institutional power structures that are biased for and against certain groups, principally different races. So CRT is an integral component of postmodernist ideology, uh, and it's a form of thinking that emerged in the 1960s with what's known as the Frankfurt School, particularly with postmodern critical analysis from guys like Michael Foucault, Herbert Marcuse, Antoni Gramsci, and Jacques Derrida. Now, although these thinkers often disagreed, obviously, with one another and were not self-proclaimed postmodernists or neo-Marxists, those are the ideas that are being established as the basis for CRT. Uh, it also takes key ideas that it shares with the black power, the radical feminists, the sexual liberation movements from the 60s and 70s, again, concerning race, power, knowledge, truth, and of always systemic oppression. So here are their, their, their main ideas are. They have a radical skepticism about objective knowledge and truth. Can you actually ever know anything objectively? Uh, they say that race and other observable human traits are social constructs. Uh, they say that society is formed out of systems of power and hierarchies, which then control knowledge and racial outcomes. And so therefore, you've got these people who are oppressed by systems of power, and they must liberate themselves by overturning those institutions that are at the top of the power structure. And therefore, it's a form of social justice to bring down such power structures, you know, defund the police and so on. And then, so you've got this idea of intersectionality, how, how different forms of inequality and oppression are interconnected through gender, race, disability, sexuality, class, and so on. Even language carries the oppressive force of dominant power structures and therefore must be reclaimed and appropriated by those who are oppressed. Uh, Orwell was right, wasn't he? Uh, uh, these guys claim in this way is that even words and speech can be violent. That's where this language of hate speech comes from, right? Uh, now, according to this, therefore, all white people are, are racist intentionally or unintentionally, but still culpable by their shared history and their current acceptance of a system that advantages white people and disadvantages minority groups. Uh, more broadly, this system is therefore assuming that where there is a difference in outcomes for individuals from different groups, it must be because of some structural injustice, which usually is going to be racism, whether overt or, or, or underlying. And the remedy to this racism, the social justice they're looking for, can be summarized as diversity, equity of outcome, inclusion, and a deconstruction of this colonial history of Western civilization, and the uplifting of those who historically did not have a voice. It's looking all the time to, to level out, not just the playing field, but the results on the playing field. Everybody gets a draw in every match that they're playing.
Uh, CRT, of course, remains that dominant theory underpinning much of the Black Lives Matter movement. It's also the explanation for that quite bizarre claim. Did you see that a few weeks ago by Whoopi Goldberg? Uh, that she claimed that the Holocaust was not a racist event because it was white on white. Now think that through. You see, if, if critical race theory is true, then white people are by definition those who have power and non-white are the oppressed and therefore the victims of racism. So when the Jews... One of the most successful racial groups in the USA, and a very white group generally, when they are the victims of an obviously racially motivated crime, the Holocaust, well, that breaks the paradigm. But as with such ideologies, the rhetoric must win, and so Whoopi makes the ridiculous claim. Now, how do we as Christians respond? Well, yes, clearly scripture says that God hates the sin of partiality and therefore racism. It affirms for us that loving God comes hand in hand with loving my neighbor, even if they are very, very different to me. In fact, especially if they are very, very different to me. Indeed, we might go further and note the great vision of the church in the New Testament is noticeably, and dare we say it proudly, multiracial. Revelation 7, 9. Uh, the Apostle John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude, no one can count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So we've got to be clear, there is simply no place for racism in the church. I I'm married to someone from a different race, and it's utterly tragic that on the very few occasions that has been an issue, it has been from someone who called themselves a Christian but who sought to mount the ludicrous argument that God had separated the nations for a reason. I think I was maybe even more angry at their abuse of scripture than their foolish prejudice. Well, the solution for racism, of course, is not least to understand that every human being is ultimately of the same race, because all of us are descended from the same parents. And that means we're all equally made by God in God's image. We have an inherent dignity as God's creatures, not something actually that the materialists, the, the deniers of a God can actually claim. For them, we're all just bags of fizzing chemicals. Uh, and so what actually gives any of us any value? But it also means if we are made by God and the biblical history is correct, it also means we're all equally fallen in sin. And again, as the Apostle Paul reminds us, when we repent of that sin and come to Jesus for forgiveness, well, here's what he says, Galatians 3.28. Then there is neither Jew nor Gentile, which of course was the great racial division of his day. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither even male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It's belonging to Christ. Well, that's the great equalizer. And that's why it's actually particularly distressing when critical race theory influences the church, because it actually ends up denying the gospel, even when its proponents seek to use gospel language. You see, uh, CRT confuses sin with power. Power isn't necessarily bad, it just depends how it's used. A CRT substitutes the individual with the tribe, the group, imputing guilt or innocence and judgment uh, or, or acquittal to collective groups, not responsible individual people. I often jokingly note that my heritage, which is half British, half Austrian, actually means I share our maximum collective guilt in this world. I'm responsible, hereditary-wise, not only for the British Empire and all the apparent evils of colonialism, but also the origins of both world wars. Uh, but that's what critical race theory does, you see. It actually makes such claims. 
It absolves guilt, not by repentance, but by claiming victim status. So in this world, you're either an oppressor or a victim. And if you are a victim, then you can't be an oppressor. The gospel, however, teaches us that because we're all sinners, we're all both at times victims and at other times the sinner who has created a victim. But you have to look to individual actions to determine what's going on, whereas critical race theory simply assumes who is in the wrong and who is in the right based on the apparent power of whatever group I belong to. It ends up being a destructive, divisive theory where there is little or no forgiveness. See, every last drop of reckoning, penance and reparation must be extracted. The notion of a genuine repentance leading to a wonderful reconciliation is gone. This is the world not of mercy, but of cancelling and silence. Critical race theory revels in the punishment of the alleged oppressor. They must pay a terrible price to make things right. The gospel of Jesus Christ rejoices in the reconciliation of sinner and sinned against. And of course, Jesus himself steps in to pay the cost. Christian, it is worlds away from critical race theory. So in one sense, we ought to label this outrage over white bread as exactly what it is. It is a ridiculously silly thing to say. But as always, the dual citizen ought not to lose sight of what lies behind it. It's a dangerous political theory, I think, that's far more widespread and accepted than perhaps some of us realize. And it's one that is beginning to get into the church too, where it will distract us from what our real problems are and what the great solution is. Jesus himself and the wonderful, forgiven and reconciled multicultural church that he gathers to himself. Well, that's almost all our time today on dual citizens. What else do we want, uh, do I think you should be looking at? Well, there's one thing in particular, uh, the, the euthanasia bill, uh, or the dying with dignity bill as it's called, uh, may be back before the New South Wales Parliament as early as next week to be read in the upper house. Keep your eyes on that. If that becomes a big issue, we will certainly be addressing that next week. And you may in the meantime want to be uh, speaking to your MPs um, about it. Uh, Russia and Ukraine, we'll be keeping our eye on that. And then anything else that comes up, if there's something that you want us to be talking about, you know what to do. Contact us on the socials, send us an email, use the contact form on the website. And of course, please do uh, like, click, subscribe, share, let other people know about Dual Citizens if you're enjoying it as well. Well, that's it for this week. My name is David Old, and this was Dual Citizens.